All right, Proverbs chapter 16 is where we pick back up this evening in our study through the book of Proverbs together, taking this kind of practical workshop on wisdom that God's laid out for us in his word here. We read in the first verse, the preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, Verse 1 here, to me, kind of the idea seems to be conveying here that anything good that we accomplish in our life, and this proverb, I think, conveys this concept, and really the entirety of God's Word supports it, that anything that happens in our life good that's accomplished really happens in two ways, one, cooperation with the Lord, and also independence upon the Lord, that there is that personal responsibility of us doing our part, yielding in faith, yielding in obedience, and yet there's also that reality of God's power and God's spirit and God's grace. Jesus himself, remember, said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And of course, the idea there implied is nothing of value, nothing good or godly. I mean, certainly there are lots of people all around the world who well, I guess to some degree, uh, you might say not apart from God giving them breath in their lungs and keeping their heart beating and keeping them alive physically, but there are lots of people who are doing things uh, in rebellion to God, so certainly the idea doesn't indicate that we can't do anything literally without God, but the idea to the believer is that there's nothing we can do of value, of, of spiritual fruitfulness. Remember, Jesus says that in John 15 in relation to him being the vine us being weak, feeble branches, just instruments through which the sap of God's Spirit flows through to produce good fruit, spiritual fruit, fruit that lasts. And the the idea is that apart from being connected and plugged into Jesus, relationally, nothing can come to pass of value or fruitfulness. And this verse kind of seems to be conveying that concept that if anything good's going to happen, and particularly here it seems to be in our speech, what we say, anything good we could say or valuable, that's going to happen in cooperation with the Lord as we stay connected to him and also as we realize our dependency upon him. That is, we can and we should, notice he says in the first part of the verse, we should prepare, uh, we should do what we can to think through things, nothing wrong with preparation. He speaks in this verse here of the preparations of the heart, and again, so we should, in good stewardship, in responsibility, we should plan, we should prepare, we should think through things. We don't want to be irresponsible and kind of just, you know, not do anything and just trust completely. Well, I don't have to do anything at all. I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to just, you know, do everything. Again, the idea is we should ready our heart in a proper manner. The preparations of the heart That belongs to man. God says that is your part. That's your responsibility. You get to participate in that. And I think to a degree, God expects us to do our part. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us to study, to show ourselves approved. So whether we're teaching the word of God or we want to be ready to give an answer, as Peter talks about, for the hope that lies within us, to be able to maybe present the gospel to someone or answer a spiritual question in a conversation, if we're in a dialogue with maybe an unsaved friend or relative who's questioning us about our our Christian life, again, we want to know the Word of God. We want to make sure that we're prepared and ready to give a, a worthwhile answer to people, whether it's a Bible verse or just understanding spiritual truths. So 
the preparations of the heart, having a heart that's prepared and ready, thought through, planned out, that's a responsible stewardship. However, any wise words that come out of our mouth as far as an answer to a question, whether it's quoting a scripture verse that's timely, any words that we speak, the Bible says here, the answer of the tongue, that's from the Lord. No taking credit for that. In other words, we do the preparation, we prepare our heart, we ready ourselves to be a vessel that's fit and ready for the master's use, but yet we also humbly acknowledge that any wise answer that comes forth, that wasn't from me. That was from the Spirit of the Lord who gave me the right thing to say in that moment. Any words that we speak that are impactful or helpful in some way to someone, whether in conversation, whether it's in a conveying of a message, teaching the Word of God, sharing the gospel, that all comes from the empowerment and the help of God's Spirit flowing through us, using our preparation, using our readiness but yet it is his spirit that is the one that's speaking. He says the answer from the tongue is from the Lord. This reminds me in many ways kind of the idea that Jesus conveyed there in Matthew chapter 10 where he was talking to the disciples about going out to minister and he said to them there in Matthew chapter 10, beware of men, he says, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And then he said this, but when they deliver you up, don't worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now again, there Jesus was not encouraging irresponsibility. He wasn't telling his disciples, listen, don't study the Old Testament, don't know the word of God, don't be ready, prayed up, have your heart prepared spiritually when this happens. He just was saying, don't freak out and be paranoid and be paralyzed because in that moment, if your heart's prepared and you're connected to me, you don't have to worry about, am I gonna have the right answer when they bring me in persecution before the governor or when I'm set before a king and I'm in this tense moment and they ask me this question, am I not gonna know what to say? Jesus says, in that moment, your father will be the one who speaks through you. The answer of the tongue will come through the Lord. And you know, I hope to some degree you've experienced that reality as a Christian, where if you're just living in right relationship with the Lord, your heart is prepared, you're being a good steward, and then all of a sudden somebody asks you a question, and in the midst of it, the Holy Spirit takes over as you're answering, and afterwards, you're more shocked than they are, right? And you're thinking, where did that come from? But that, that's the idea there, that answer of the tongue. It's from the Lord. You know, he gave you what to say to that person in that moment, whether you were comforting someone in hardship and just a timely word or sharing the gospel and verses came to mind or just the right way to answer their question. Again, that's that cooperative experience between us of the Lord. We're preparing, but ultimately he's in a sense the one sharing is the idea. Verse two, he says, in all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So here the idea is, it is the natural tendency of us as humans to always think that we're right and that what we are doing is acceptable. And it is the natural inclination of every human heart to just think our ways are pure according to the way that we see it. That's why we're doing it that way. And so our natural inclination as human beings is always to see ourselves as innocent. 
We tend to always just think there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. Our actions are acceptable. The way that we're handling that, we just we don't tend to see our own error very well. We just think we're free from guilt and matters. So, hey, just you know, nothing wrong with what I said or nothing wrong with what I did there. And we don't tend to be very accurate, the Bible's telling us, when it comes to self-evaluation. And so because of this, it's important to recognize that though we may not always think what we're doing is wrong, he says, look, the Lord evaluates on a much deeper level. He says the Lord actually weighs the spirits. The idea is the inward life. In other words, the idea there is the Lord evaluates on a deeper level. He actually weighs out our motives. Well, what I'm not doing is wrong, and it looks pure in my eyes, and it seems totally innocent in my eyes, and God says, right, but, but from my eyes... Your motive's wrong. Your heart attitude's wrong. Your intention is wrong. And the reason you have that view, God's saying, is because your perspective is skewed. And it's kind of like, you know, we talk about sometimes wearing like shaded lenses. You know, you put on a pair of sunglasses or, you know, if you, know, if you put on a pair of glasses and, you know, kind of you know, rose colored, so you just see everything and it's kind of tinted and shaded according to the way that you're looking at it. Well, we may look at something and, and think that well, nothing wrong with that, but God says, you know, the problem wrong with that is your heart is wrong. Or your motive is the reason that's the wrong thing behind us. So again, God weighs things on a much different level. He considers our intentions, which matter to him just as much. And so wisdom teaches us that our own self-evaluation is usually not always very accurate. Only God's evaluation of us is accurate. And so it's very important for us to keep that in mind because that keeps us humble and that keeps us open to being shown our own errors because we tend to just kind of gravitate towards Hey, I'm not doing anything wrong here, but we need to realize just because your evaluation thinks that doesn't mean that's true. And so sometimes we need to pray like Psalm 139, search me, O God, and, and see if there be any wicked way in me uh, and reveal that to me, Lord. If my heart and my mind's wrong on this, you know, convict me on that and help me to see that uh, perhaps I am wrong because God's weighing out your intention and motive, and that's the thing that's the bigger issue. Verse three, he then says, and commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So the idea here, wisdom understands that the best way to have, whether it's our thoughts as translated here, or your translation may say our works. So whether it's our thinking being correct or whether it's how things work out, the works, the things that we're doing, he says here, wisdom understands the best way to have our thinking correct and our plans work out is always to, we might say, to make sure we're consciously involving God. Now, now that may kind of seem like, well, but that doesn't seem to make any sense. Of course, I'm involving God, I'm a Christian, but look, uh, we need to remember, we have to do our part to intentionally, actively include God in our situation. Because sometimes we just go down the road with a thinking pattern or we go down the road with something we're pursuing or acting upon. And sometimes as Christians, I think the longer we walk with the Lord, sometimes we can get a little bit more negligent. We're just kind of, Lord, I'm doing this and would you bless it? And, and rather than asking in advance, God, do you want me to do this? We just kind of jump into something. Our you know, drives take us this way. And sometimes they're even good. And as I've said before, you know, we can do good things. We can do even do godly things. But it may not be really the thing that God himself wants us to do. And I can prove that from a biblical perspective because in the book of Acts, remember, Paul tried to go into Asia and to preach the gospel. And it says the Holy Spirit forbade him, hindered him. Wait a minute there. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
why would the Spirit of God hinder one of the most effective missionaries and evangelists in modern New Testament church history from going to a region to preach the gospel? And then he pulled back from there and he tried to go in another direction. And it says, and again, the Holy Spirit would not permit him again, hindered him again. Why? It wasn't because God didn't want the gospel preached there. It, the simple matter was it was not for Paul to go there at that time. And those two closed doors and restrictions put Paul in the place where then he heard about the man of Macedonia come over here and help us. And that was where he was supposed to go next. So it was a good thing and a godly thing to go to either of those regions to preach the gospel. And ultimately, the unique thing is, is later on, it seems that God comes back around and brings Paul to that region later on. But the issue there is just because something's good or godly doesn't mean it's what God wants us to do. And so we need to genuinely be serious about, Lord, I I'm truly want to commit this to you. What I'm doing, do you want me to do this? Lord, I want my thinking to be correct. I want my thoughts to be established. I want the plans to work out according to your will. And here, just a great wisdom concept. He says, commit your works to the Lord, and then you can ensure all the more that your thoughts will be established. That is, they'll, they'll take root and they'll function in a good way. So whatever we're doing, whatever we're attempting, whatever it may be we're working through, we might say, he says, commit this to the Lord. And that word commit there in the Hebrew literally is a term that means to, to roll over, or the idea is to roll onto. So the idea there, you kind of picture the concept to commit something to the Lord is basically to say you're taking it and, and you're, you're rolling it over onto God's lap of responsibility. You're saying, Lord, I, you know, I, I don't want to be responsible for this. I, I can't handle this. I don't know how to work through this. So the idea is we just commit it to the Lord in the sense that we totally roll it over into his hands. We give it over to him completely. Lord, if you want this to happen or Lord, if this is going to work, I just... I can't handle this. this is too heavy of a load for me. I can't work this out. I can't figure out. You just kind of commit it. You roll it completely over into God's control and you give it over to him in, in a real intentional sense. And he says that when we do that through prayer and yielding it over, turning it over to him, trusting him to handle it, trusting him to resolve it, relying on him to do it, to work things out. He says that is the best way to ensure that our thoughts on a matter will be proper. If I do that, he says, if you're doing that, th then you're going to find that your thoughts on the matter, how you're thinking about it, are going to be a lot more established. They're going to be a lot more rooted and, and accurate the way you're thinking, as well as it's the best way to ensure the outcome unfolds in a stable manner where it succeeds kind of in a, in a healthy way. Much like Psalm 37, we read there where the psalmist said, commit your way to the Lord, trust also to him, and he shall bring it to pass. So again, just great wisdom here to, hey, I want to make sure my thoughts are on track. I want to make sure that my, you know, my, my intentions work out. Well, he says, make sure you commit those works to the Lord, and then your thoughts will be established and plans will tend to work out a lot better. Verse 4, he then says, and the Lord has made all for himself. Again, speaking of God being the creator of all things, the controller of all things. He, he's the one who brought everything into existence. The Lord has made all things for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. So wisdom understands that God, as creator of all and ruler of all, works all things ultimately to serve his intended purposes, 
to ultimately come together to bring out his plans. You know, the Bible tells us in numerous places that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is everything that's happening, God somehow has this amazing way in his wisdom and his power and his sovereignty and just superintending over everything to make everything to ultimately somehow serve and fulfill his purposes. Now, when he says here, the Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Again, I have to be careful here. As I've said before, we don't want to build theology in wisdom principles from the book of Proverbs. You can really get off track with that. And really to do such, quite honestly, to do it incorrectly anyway, you'd have to violate other areas of scripture. That's not good biblical interpretation. Scripture should line up with other scripture. That's how we determine proper theology. So when he says here, you know, God made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom, God's word is not declaring that God creates people to do wicked things. It's not saying that God creates people to behave in wicked ways and he takes responsibility for their wickedness, nor is it saying that God purposely destines those wicked people to be destroyed in eternal destruction, that God says, I'm going to create some to go to heaven and I'm going to create others to do wicked things just so I can punish them and send them to hell. The Bible does not teach that. James tells us in chapter one that God does not and cannot tempt people to do evil or cause people to do evil. But a man is enticed towards evil when his own heart is drawn away in his own sinfulness. So again, God does not cause man to do evil. It's a willful choice to rebel against God. The Bible tells us in Revelation that God creates all things for his glory. That's the intended purpose of why God creates all things. But of course, we know that people do rebel and we can do wicked things. Humanity can turn away from God. And the idea here is, however, even the wicked who rebel in doing their wickedness in due time, ultimately their wickedness will not succeed. But what will happen is God superintending even their wrongdoing will somehow serve God's higher purposes, even as even one day they're justly judged for their wrongdoing. And they suffer their eternal destruction for their continuous rebellion. Even in that, God will be proved just. And he'll be proved justified that he's righteous even in their punishment and their destruction. But again, God's incredible wisdom enables him to make all things work according to his purposes. And this is the amazing thing about God is that he allows human beings a degree of freedom and decision, but yet we can rest in the fact that he ultimately still superintends over everything and causes things to still orchestrate his final purposes and what he wants. And when we see evil operating, it seems like perhaps it's not being dealt with, but I would tell you, here's the word you got to remember, time. It just, God, it just seems like this wickedness is, and just seems like it's not being dealt with now, yet. And we have to trust God's timetable and realize that no man is ultimately going to succeed in kind of subverting God. Psalm 76 says, even the wrath of man shall praise the Lord ultimately. God will even use the wrath of mankind and their hatred against him to serve his purposes. I think of Genesis chapter you know, 50. Right now I'm going through the book of Genesis in my devotional time and all these horrible things right, that Joseph's brothers did to him, the evil things that they did to him. I mean, just horrible. And you think your family's dysfunctional. Read the book of Genesis. Read Jacob's family. That is the most dysfunctional family going out there. 
I mean, you want to talk about some real craziness. And here, Joseph, I mean, these brothers do these horrible things to him. And then later in life, some over two decades later, here he is. He's the prime minister in Egypt during a time of famine, and he has food where no one else in the land, and they're all suffering and struggling, and they go. And, of course, we know the story. Joseph reveals himself that he's still alive to his brothers, and he ends up being used in that powerful position to be able to spare not only his family in many, many lives, but even to spare the messianic line. He spared the line of Messiah so that it wasn't exterminated. And when Joseph speaks to his brothers after all the evil, wicked things they did to him, it reminds me of this verse here, how even evil, wicked things serve God's purposes, because in Genesis 5, chapter 50, Joseph said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, what? The evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save lives. So again, Joseph was able to recognize in his wisdom this reality. God let you do evil things, and he allowed you to be able to do those wicked, evil things, but he turned those things in his sovereignty and used them for a good purpose, to bring about the events so that I would be at the right place at the right time and ready for this day to be able to function in this capacity, to be able to fulfill the plan of God. So again, we have to trust God's sovereignty in the midst of these things. Verse five, he says, everyone proud in heart is an abomination. There's that strong word again, an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. So notice, God, who is supreme ruler above all, the most important person, right? And, and we've talked about before, pride is basically a term that means to see yourself above. It speaks of an inflated view of self-importance an inflated superiority complex. That's what pride is and why we behave in proud and arrogant ways when we're struggling with pride. And so think about that. Here's God. Here is the most important person. Here is the most superior, strong, supreme ruler over all. And imagine, here's the supreme ruler over all, and he's watching a human being behave proudly, like they're important, like they're superior. And you have to almost wonder, you know, it tells us at times that God sits in heaven and he laughs at what humanity does. And again, the idea is almost, it's almost got to be somewhat humorous to a degree to God to watch finite human beings behave in the way that they do. And so here he says, everyone proud in heart is an abomination, strong word an abomination to the Lord because he looks to the supreme ruler of it all and he finds it greatly, the word abomination means disgusting or, or hateful. So greatly disgusting when people are proud. And notice he says, no matter how many people in their pride even join forces. Hey, well, we have a lot of people in this prideful idea that we have here. We've got a big following. God says, I don't care how big your following is. He says, even if they join forces in their pride, he says, none will go unpunished. In other words, God's not impressed either by big followings and large groups of people who join forces together and their human arrogancy motivated by their agenda. He says, they're still not gonna overrule God's power. They're not gonna overturn God's judgment or gonna overturn God's view in dealing with them. Verse six, he then says, in mercy and truth, Atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs 
from evil. So when iniquity is happening, there's that term there in verse 6, iniquity, which just speaks of just offensive wrongdoing. When iniquity's transpired, it always damages relationships. So atonement then, which isn't a word we use very common today, atonement is needed when some form of damaged relationship has happened to make things right. When you look at the word atonement, you can almost break that down at one mint. That's the idea there. A damaged relationship has happened because of iniquity, offense, hurtful wrongdoing, and atonement, hey, I need to atone for what I've done wrong to you. I need to find a way to make things right, to restore, to atone for the offense. That's the idea. Notice two key, key ingredients, he says here in atonement, are mercy, which is kind restraint and forgiveness, and truth, which is honest dealing and doing what is just. And whenever there's been a strained relationship and there needs to be restoration or atonement for the offense in that relationship, both of those things are key ingredients. There needs to be merciful attitudes, kind restraint, not being overly harsh. And at the same time, there needs to be truthful, honest, just dealings to make things right. And he says here in verse six, it's also then by the fear of the Lord, reverence towards the Lord, that one departs from evil. In other words, the wrongdoing stops. So notice, it's a healthy fear of the Lord, the Bible says, that motivates a person to depart from doing evil, to stop sinning, we might say. So we might gather from that. The opposite is true as well, that when a person does not stop and depart from their sin, the reason why they're not departing from that sin is because they don't fear the Lord. So if someone continues in a particular sin, knowing it's wrong, pressing past their conscience, and they stay in a pattern of sin, they continue to do something they clearly know is wrong, whether it's an attitude or practice or whatever, the reason they are doing that, God says, is because they have no fear of the Lord in their life. They have more of a brazen attitude to think, I can just abuse the grace of God and trample Jesus under my feet. Nothing's going to happen to me. And the Bible says that's a grievous error. In fact, it's a foolishness. It's an indication that a person has no fear of the Lord in their life, and that's a scary place to be because he says when the fear of the Lord comes into someone's life, that's what prompts them and motivates them. It's the fear of the Lord that prompts a person to then depart, to make a departure from wrongdoing. And what a beautiful picture verse 6 is, if you haven't seen it already by the Holy Spirit, just as we read it, what a beautiful picture that is there of Jesus and his work in our lives. As we think about the iniquity that exists that causes us to be in a strained relationship with God, and it's in mercy and truth, the meeting together of the mercy of Jesus Christ, the love of God, the mercy of God, and the truth and the justice, the holiness of Jesus, meeting together, those two things coming together that allows God, Romans 3 says, to be just, to remain just, and also at the same time to become the justifier of those who believe because of Jesus bringing both the mercy of God and the truth of God meeting together on the cross. And in so doing, he provided atonement for our iniquity to satisfy, to make things right between us and the Father in heaven. And now it's in experiencing that in love and reverence for God that then in the fear of the Lord, we then turn and depart from evil in appreciation for what Jesus has done. Verse seven, he says, and when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, again, not per se what we might call a Bible promise or guarantee. 
And again, if we were to say when somebody's ways totally please the Lord, all of his enemies will always be at peace with him. Well, we have a problem there because in the New Testament, I would venture to say everything Jesus did pleased the Lord, pleased the Father. And he still had enemies, right? So again, this is just another reminder again. You got to be careful. You can't try and build theology on one proverb. So you go, well, that's not a Bible promise. It's a, it's a wisdom principle. It's a principle of wisdom, what God is saying here, a general principle of wisdom to live by, that we should make it our highest priority to live in a way that we please the Lord. And we do what honors the Lord, and we try and please the Lord instead of, listen, trying to always please people. Because if we spend our life always trying to please people, I'll tell you what will eventually happen, you won't please the Lord. And there will be times that in order to please people, you won't be able to please the Lord. So God just says, let me give you a wisdom principle. Just live in this manner. Always seek to let your ways please the Lord. And when you do that, oftentimes God will honor that in such a way that as you do what pleases the Lord and you're living righteously before God and you're conducting your affairs in a right way, what you'll find is oftentimes God will make even your greatest enemies and antagonists chill out a little bit. Because you'll be doing things in a right way that please the Lord. And as you do that, it will bring peace to situations. And the antagonism from your enemies will often be subdued somewhat. You'll find sometimes even your, your enemies will, will just they'll be at peace with you. It doesn't mean they're going to stop being your enemies. But perhaps they won't just hassle you as much. There won't be as much conflict and agitation because God will honor things as you do things that please him. So again, what's the wisdom idea there? Please God. Always say, Lord, how can I please you in this? I'm not going to try and please them. I'm not going to try and please this person. I'm just going to do what pleases you, and then I'm going to trust you to deal with things with this person or who may be an enemy or a conflict in my life. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. So the idea here, better to have a little less in life monetarily, but to know you're doing what's right. So he says, if you have to pick, it'd be better to have a little bit less in life monetarily, but just know that you're in right relationship with God, to know that you're doing the right thing. It'd be better to have a little bit less money, God says, and just know things are right between you and God, and you're doing what's right, than to have more money, greater revenue, and know that you're guilty of wrongdoing because you had to compromise to do it or you had to cut corners here, or cheat there, or you know, in some way you had to compromise being right with God in order to just get a little bit more revenue or income in some way. And he says, that'd be a bad trade-off there to have more income, but be not in right, just relationship with God. It'd be better to be right with God and have less. Verse 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Again, notice, nothing wrong with planning. The Bible teaches. That's stewardship. Nothing wrong. This idea people get hyper-spiritual sometimes. You can't plan. You shouldn't plan. And we see many times in the Word of God where planning is wise. It's stewardship. Here he speaks again about a man's heart planning his way. So nothing wrong with planning, but we have to, when we plan, leave room for the Lord to direct what unfolds ultimately. You know, it's often been said before, and I think it's a great illustration. Make your plans, but just make them in pencil. It's the best way to do that. And just give God the eraser. Make plans, but don't etch them in stone. Don't write them in pen. It's a James 4 thing. You know, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this and go to that city and such and such. 
if the Lord wills. Again, the idea is not being presumptuous. So nothing wrong with planning, but in the planning, we have to use wisdom to realize that we may plan out the way we want to go. But notice he says, it's the Lord who directs all of the steps of how things happen. Isn't that interesting? We plan our way. We plan out the whole way. I am going that way. And the Lord says, okay, you may be planning out the whole way, but the Lord says, I do things one step at a time. I'm going to direct your steps. And so God does things one step at a time, oftentimes progressive revelation. And we walk, how do you walk with God? You walk one step at a time. So that's what the Lord does. He directs our steps as people. He knows the ultimate way and where we're going or where he wants to get us. But we want to focus on a destination. The Lord's carefully directing each step in our life because there's purposeful intention in each step that we take and each next step that he takes us through or takes us towards. And I can tell you this, from God's viewpoint, the, the quickest way, or I should better say, not the quickest way, the most efficient way and the best way from us to get to point A to point B is not always a straight line. Straight line, right there to there. That's, and, and God says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to have to take you this way, and then that way, then I may take you that way, then I may take you all the way back that way, and then loop you around that way and spin around three times and put the tail on the pin the tail on the donkey. And, uh, I mean, God does that, doesn't he? And he'll take us through steps in life to get us to locations or to destinations or what he wants us or the way he wants us to go. And we're thinking, Lord, what are you doing? And he's saying, I'm directing the different steps that I want to take you through to have things orchestrate the best way possible so that you're prepared and the timing is right and things work out. And again, we see this in the book of Acts. We look at all the times you watch God directing people, Abraham, Joseph. We, we see this in the lives of so many people. And God works the same in our lives as well. Okay, to plan out your way, but know the Lord. He's wanting to direct your steps. Verse 10, it says, divination is on the lips of the king. The idea there, divination, is words spoken with powerful influence. And his mouth must not transgress in judgment. So rulers have great power in what they say, right? Divination or the decisions that they make. A ruler can greatly influence people with his words. And their power to make decisions is very strong. So therefore, a leader must be additionally careful. Notice he says not to transgress in their judgment, his mouth must not, verse 10, transgress in judgment. So because a leader does have authority and influence in their decision-making and in their leadership, it is all the more critical, God says, in wisdom that leaders handle things where they're more cautious in their judgments because they need to recognize their judgments are going to have a lot greater influence. So when a leader's navigating something, they have to be all the more cautious so that they don't transgress, he says, in the judgment call that they make. That's important to realize. And so let me say two things in relation to that. It is wise to remember that if you lead in any form. So in any form or fashion that you are in a role where you are leading, look what he says, his mouth must not transgress in judgment. Be careful. Don't be quick to make decisions. Don't be impulsive to make judgment calls. Instead, take your time, think it through, and don't think about, what, think about, Lord, what will please you, what will be in the best interest of everyone, because your decisions carry influence, so you got to be a little bit more cautious 
in your judgment making. And let me say this on the other side of that too. It's also wise, therefore, not to be overly critical of leaders when they make decisions. What do they make that decision for? Well, that's stupid. What are they so hypersensitive? You're forgetting the fact that they're a leader and they have to be a little bit more cautious in the judgments of how they come to certain decisions and determinations. And you and I can just quickly look on the outside, whether it's being frustrated with a political leader or frustrated with a, you know, a, a work or business leader or frustrated with a spiritual leader, and, and we can tend to do that when we need to realize, look, we don't know all the details. We have no idea the reasoning process behind that, and perhaps their greatest concern is that they don't want to transgress in their judgment. So sometimes we can make too quick of a judgment on a decision that was rendered. And so again, we wanna use both sides of that. When we're leading, be wise. And when others are leading to realize, to give some latitude there, that perhaps there's a reasoning behind that decision and they didn't wanna transgress and maybe we're just not seeing what they saw. And because they recognize that, they're trying to just make a good judgment call in the best interest of a greater picture. Verse 11 says, honest weights and scales are the Lord's all the weights in the bag are his work. So here the idea seems to be the concept that God wants ethical work in business. He wants things to be done in a way that are ethical and, and upright. He's concerned that we use honest, ethical standards in conducting our business. And God wants us to even, I think, see his involvement and his concern in how we operate in business dealings. Because he says all the weights in the bag are his work. It's almost as if sometimes, again, we, we don't want to compartmentalize and think, oh, well, I, you know, I can be unethical in the way I do this in my work or in my business because it, I mean, it's just, that's not worry. God wants to be involved in everything. And so even in our business dealings and how we do it, he wants us to use an ethical standard, do what's right, what's moral, what's legal, what's, what's inappropriate standards of how we would treat people and honesty and those kind of things. Wise people keep this in mind and they avoid a lot of foolish ruin because they realize God wants us involved in all of our affairs. Verse 12, he says, and it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness for a throne is established by righteousness. Again, there's that term, an abomination. So it brings great hatred or disgust when kings commit wickedness. Again, when a king does something what's wicked, when a ruler or a leader uses their authority or their place of influence to do evil things or wrong things, he says that is going to cause many people to be disgusted by that. Whether, again, it's a political leader, whether it's a business leader, whether it's a spiritual leader, when someone uses their leadership authority to do evil or wrong things, it brings great abomination. That is, people are disgusted. They're frustrated. I can't believe they're using their authority and doing those kind of things. And he says, for a throne is established, made healthy, by righteousness. That's how things should be operated in a right way. That's what secures and stabilizes the influence of a leader. Verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of kings and they love him who speaks what is right. So when a king is operating, making his leadership decisions, right, and having to act in that role, they appreciate those around them wise counselors and cabinet members, right, who are going to say to them things, it says here, that are right, people who are speaking what is right, righteous lips. So leaders appreciate the idea of those who say what is right. Not yes men, 
not people who are just going to agree with everything, but those who are going to give good and wise input. He's saying here, it's a pleasure, an enjoyable thing when those around you, if you're a leader, a king, a ruler in any way, that they're honest with you and they give you helpful, wise insight and direction. They're encouraging, they're loyal, they speak right things that you need to hear that help them as a leader to make the best decisions possible. And so he says, this is a great benefit that can be rendered. And he says, kings appreciate having those who speak wise things around them. As messengers of death in the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. So again, remember a king in that day could just speak the word and off with your head. So a messenger could be sent out. Kings and rulers had that power and authority to bring an end to a life. If you angered the king, all they had to do, remember John the Baptist, just speak the word and off with your head. So he says here, wisdom recognizes that a ruler has authority, so therefore wise people, the idea is they seek to appease the anger of those who rule over their lives in some form, not to stoke the anger of people who have authority. Again, that, that's just foolish. Why do you want to stoke the anger and be antagonistic of someone who has a degree of authority over your life in any position? That's just going to make things more difficult for yourself. Better to try and wisely appease that wrath so they just leave you alone and you can do what you need to do without their interference or hassle. Verse 15, in the light of a king's face is life and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. Here the idea is when you're submitted to the authority of a throne, it's wise to seek to keep in favor with the blessing of the throne. That makes life, again, as I said, much easier and better for you. Verse 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Again, the idea here simply is just the encouragement to have wisdom and understanding on how to live properly, God says, is actually something that's more valuable than having more silver and gold or money. Think about that. God says, if you had to choose between having more wisdom and greater understanding of how to live life well and live properly or more gold or more silver, God said, I would recommend go for the wisdom, go for the understanding. Because see, you can have a limitless amount of gold and silver, but if you're foolish and you have no understanding, what's going to happen to all the gold and silver? It's, it's just going to ruin you or you're just going to lose it all anyway. So God says, better to have a little less gold and silver, have a lot more wisdom, because then you'll probably multiply your gold and silver or you'll spend it more wisely and you'll do better. So again, this is the idea that we would value the right things. You know, we tend to value wealth. God values wisdom. You know, it's very interesting. You know, you, you go to, we're getting ready to come up on the holiday seasons, right? And, and think about it. You're going to see malls and you're going to see stores during the holiday season. And there, some of them are going to have lines around them on the big, what's the big shopping day? The Friday, whatever it's called, right? Just, you're going to see lot, people everywhere just lining up to get into stores, to acquire some material thing. I've never seen people make a line to show up at a church. God's wisdom, we've got to get in there. It's the best Friday deal ever. It's free. You just go in and you get free wisdom, free understanding, right? Again, it just shows our value system. We value material things in a very unfortunate way, and God says sometimes that's foolish. Wisdom says value is 
Get wisdom, even more than gold. Get understanding. It's better than even choosing more silver. The highway of the upright, verse 17, is to depart from evil, and he who keeps his way preserves his soul. So notice the highway, that's where you travel to make you know, forward progression. A highway is how you quickly get forward. So he says the way to get forward, the highway of the upright, it, here's God's, God's insightful idea, depart from evil. God says, do you want to get forward in life? Just always take the road that helps you depart from evil. Take the way that gets you away from anything evil. God says, if you get on that highway, departing from evil, you're going to preserve your soul and you're going to get where you need to a lot more quickly and you're going to be in a better destination in the end. Verse 18, very famous proverb, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So again, the idea there, pride goes before destruction. Whenever someone is operating in pride, they're pursuing a path, the Bible says, to a downfall. They're heading towards self-ruin because he says here, pride often is the, the thing that goes before the major destruction and a haughty, arrogant spirit is there. It exists right before someone enters into a great fall. So whenever someone has fallen personally, we might say in moral failure, or maybe they brought great destruction into their life, God says typically you can trace that back to the error of pride. It is they got an inflated view of self-importance and self-entitlement and in their pride and their arrogance and stubbornness and they didn't want to listen to reason or people cautioning them. And as the result of that, they end up falling or they enter into a major destruction in their life. And again, so again, there's the idea of the danger of pride. So wisdom realizes, Lord, please, please protect me from pride. And you know the most dangerous thing about pride is the first thing pride does is it blinds you from seeing that you're proud. And so, Lord, please protect me from pride. Wisdom understands the great danger of it, of letting it determine our choices and steps because it can bring great self-harm into our lives. So he says, verse 19, better to be of a humble spirit, there's the opposite now, with the lowly, then to divide the spoil, great resources and things maybe of reward with those who are proud. So wisdom realizes that it's better to take the path of humility and end up with the lowly. And the idea is the lowly is those who have less, the lowly, meager condition. So he's saying, look, it'd be better to take the path of humility in life and end up with the, the lowly and to remain safe and stable than it would be to instead let pride motivate you and arrogantly press forward in brazen wrongdoing and end up dividing the great spoil with the proud where you get more for yourself. And, you know, look, there are going to be times in our lives where we have to make that judgment call. There are going to be times where we have to make a decision, okay, I can hear in this situation, I can have a humble spirit and take the path of humility, and it may mean that I personally lose out. I lose out getting to prove that I'm right, or I lose out getting to get my way. And, 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 but to take that path of humility, we actually end up being more safe, though we may lose out or have less, as compared to we can take the opposite path. I'm going to get the spoil. I deserve it. And, and, and God says, you can do that, but you're going to find that you're going to have more, but your proud attitude is ultimately going to bring you back to verse 18, 
where pride is going to go before your own destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So sometimes we have to make that judgment call. When you do, my encouragement, always take the piece of humble pie. And Lord, I'm going to take the path of humility. I think it's just a safer way to go, and it's a good judgment call I've seen many times in my life and the lives of so many others. Verse 20 says, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. Now, the idea of heeding the word seeks of just being responsive to instruction, to direction. The person who is willing to heed the word is someone who will listen to instruction, receive direction. And often, he says, when we do that, we will find things end up turning out for the good. So what's the big deal? Why do I need to obey? Why do I need to follow that direction? Well, God says wisdom just takes counsel and it follows advice. It submits to authority. And it finds that when you do that, typically, things end up working out a lot better that way. Typically, when we just follow the instruction, we receive direction, we don't always have to you know, challenge and buck against the system. He says, you'll find a lot of times you're going to find things work out a lot better that way. Things just go good. They tend to just go a lot more easy and turn out for the good when we're willing to just be an obedient, compliant person in nature. And he says, and whoever trusts the Lord, again, Lord, I'm just going to be obedient here and I'm going to trust you with this. He says, whoever trusts the Lord ends up finding happy is he. Now, certainly this verse, verse 20, is very applicable even just, again, if we take it directly to heeding the word by heeding the word of God. He who heeds the word, whose word? Well, the greater authority, the greatest authority, heed the word of God. Don't be foolish. Don't think just because God's word is difficult to obey in some area that, well, I just, you know, I don't know, and just maybe God will give me an exception here. No, let me encourage you, always obey the word. Use the wisdom to say, you know what, that may be hard or it may contradict or it may be challenging, but I am just going to, I'm going to say, nevertheless, what does the scripture say on this? And I'm going to obey the word wisely, and you will find if you obey God's word wisely, you'll find typically things turn out for the good for you. Things will end up going much better, and certainly as you do such, he says, whoever trusts the Lord by obeying his word and trusting his word ends up also finding you got a little more happiness in your life. You know, I would venture to say, and forgive me if I'm wrong in your situation, that if you're here tonight as a Christian, that since you've been obeying and living according to the word of God, you're probably a little less miserable and hopefully a little bit more happy because you're just obeying the word of the Lord, and he knows how to bring happiness when we do things his way. Verse 21, he says, And the wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. So here, people will appreciate the ideas, those who offer wisdom, the wise in heart. People offer wisdom. It helps it work out for a better outcome for them. It helps them prepare better, maybe navigate what's ahead in their future. That's what prudence is. And he also mentions in our verse here, sweetness of the lips increases learning. The idea here is learning how to communicate in a kind, caring way. Sweetness of the lips. You know, it's often, you know, the idea there, you know, catch more, was it catch more flies with, with honey instead of vinegar or something like that. And that's the idea there. That if we just speak in a way where we use our words, where rather than being harsh and, you know, unkind and cruel, it helps with receptivity when we speak in a little bit more of a sweet tone or a sweet manner. And again, not the idea of being sweet and sweet talk and manipulating someone, but the idea is just learning how to speak in a way where there's a sweet, caring, appealing attitude. He says that helps people's receptivity. 
you'll find that people will be more willing to learn. It will increase their learning because they'll be a little bit more interested and open to hearing. One way to increase people's learning is to avoid just being sour. Don't be unkind. Don't be harsh in your words. Even if you got to say hard or difficult things, say them in a way where there's love behind it, there's a graciousness in the way that you say it. You know, he's going to say later on in the book of Proverbs, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Again, Jesus spoke very strong, authoritative things, but there was a mildness and a graciousness. And again, it made it much easier to digest, right? Much easier to digest. Somebody gives you something sweet, it's harder to resist that, right? Especially if it's after dinner and you're a sweet tooth. You know, much harder to resist that. That's the idea. Somebody speaks in a tone, man, I really wanted to hate that guy, but just he was so stinking nice. And I went there wanting to hate him. And then, you know, some person just speaks and they're mild-mannered and they just communicate incredible truth, but they don't get all worked up and mean and nasty and, you know, belligerent in the way they're talking. And the person walks away and says, man, I went there wanting to hate him, but he was kind of nice and it, it just made sense. Uh, and it just helps, he says, it increases people's learning. Verse 22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but correction of fools is folly. So to have understanding, it's like a wellspring of life to the one who possesses. So if you possess understanding on important matters, God says it's a great possession because it actually will continually supply you guidance. Like an ongoing well of life, your understanding will help you to increase your learning and to be able to handle things more wisely, where he says, in contrast, sadly, trying to correct those who are bent on living foolishly, it's usually just going to be dismissed as valueless because they're going to just see it as foolish input. And if they're bent on folly, they're not going to listen to what you want to share. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth, the Bible says, verse 23, and adds learning to his lips. So here the idea is, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth. The idea is wisdom helps our heart to greatly communicate in a way where we're going to be able to offer input in wise ways. Attaining wisdom, one of the benefits is it will greatly help the way that we speak to other people. It's going to help us speak in a manner that we're going to be able to help people to learn. Again, that wisdom teaches and helps us to learn how to use our lips and our words more effectively. And again, what is one of the big themes in the book of Proverbs? A big area of life is what? Speech. <laughs> Talking, right? And so again, wisdom, as you become more wise, it'll help you communicate in a lot more of an effective way, which is a big part of what we do in life, learning how to talk through things and communicate. Verse 24, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. So again, here's this idea of communicating again. And notice, wise people understand that people in life are often hungry, and I'll use that term, I think hungry, to hear what they need to know. There are a lot of people, whether they acknowledge it or say it out loud, they are hungry to understand things about life and what they need to know. And so God says here, listen, when you feed people, if you want them to digest what is good and helpful, 
Use pleasant words like a honeycomb. The honeycomb was like the sweetest thing in that day. We might say today a honeycomb be like, you know, like a Milky Way or a Snickers or whatever your, you know, candy bar is of choice. Again, it's something that's appetizing. It's appealing. Sweetness to the soul. It's satisfying and health to the bones. So again, what are pleasant words? The idea is words that are not ruinous, harmful they're not words that are toxic and are going to discourage and make a person sick. It's not negative talk. Pleasant words instead are the opposite. They're words that are enjoyable to listen to. So words that are good and pleasing and helpful and encouraging. They're gracious words that are uplifting and encouraging and not negative and, and just you know polluting people's minds. And he says, if you speak those kind of words, pleasant words, he says, those things are going to not only be enjoyable to listen to, but it's actually going to bring health to people. Instead of making people unhealthy, it's going to make them healthy. Now, look, th this is why this is important, and we'll, we'll stop for here this evening, because as he gets down into the next verses, he's going to talk about those who do the exact opposite. In the verses below, he's going to talk about how, in verse 27, how the ungodly person goes around digging up evil, and then as they're digging up people's past failures, they're using those things, people's past failures, as ammunition to start forest fires all over. And God says, that's a really ungodly person. And then in the next verse, he's going to talk about another way people are troublemakers. He's going to talk about how a perverse person always goes around you know, stirring up strife. And look at verse 28. He says, a whisperer separates the best of friends. What's a whisperer? A whisper is someone who's not talking openly, they're talking quietly to one person, and they're ruining good, solid relationships. And God says, if you're doing that, your heart is really perverse. Stop. And so again, God, again, always seems to come back to this valuable, important lesson of being really wise to realize we can use our words to ruin Good, healthy, solid relationships, or we can use our words to impart health and life and healing by speaking good, healthy, pleasant words. The power of our words, right? Such an important thing to remember in regards to living wisely. Let's stand. Let's pray together.